An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Josh Zinner, CEO of the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, or ICCR. At a time when ESG and responsible investing are increasingly subject to heated, partisan discussions of what should or shouldn't be the purpose of investing, ICCR has a unique viewpoint. The ICCR pioneered the use of shareholder advocacy to press companies on environmental, social, and governance issues some 50 years ago, when most of those contributing to the heat of today's discussions weren't even born. So the ICCR brings experience, wisdom, and judgment to the discussion. Oh, it brings one more thing, faith. The core of ICCR is, and has always been, the investing arms of faith-based institutions. We'll examine what that means in today's debate. In the ongoing question of the overlap or disjunction between ethical values and financial value, Josh and ICCR have a deep-seated belief that responsible investing and profitable investing intersect over time. Today, they stand at the intersection of finance and faith of the grassroots and Wall Street. It's an interesting view from that perch. We'll try and explore a bit. Under Josh, the ICCR has expanded to include some 300 member institutions with a total of $4 trillion in assets under management, scores of asset managers, academic institutions, foundations, NGOs, and pension funds have joined in the original core of those faith-based institutions. Josh himself has gained a reputation as a principled and fair advocate who will listen. He's a lawyer, advisory board member of the Consumer Financial Protection Board, former co-director of the New Economy Project. Previously, he worked at Oxfam and is a housing advocate. Welcome, Josh. Uh, thanks very much for having me, John. So. What's your origin story? We, we often say around here that interesting people have had interesting lives, and you seem to have always been interested in the intersection of social justice and the financial system. How'd that come about? How'd you become the person you are? So I'll, uh, hopefully I won't be digging back too far into the past, but to try and draw a line. I was working as a social worker coming out of college and uh, had worked for a couple of years at a homeless shelter in Boston before that with street kids in Guatemala and, and before that with kids uh, who were adjudicated in the system. And I, I increasingly became aware of kind of the dead ends in, uh, in, in the work that I was doing at, for example, at the homeless shelter, you know, the police would, would just dump guys off on the, on the doorstep who, who were drinking, who were mentally ill and it was beautiful work and a lot of great experiences there, but understanding that there was, I had a desire to, to push for more systemic change. I went to law school and coming out of law school, 
I was working as a housing lawyer representing low-income seniors for a legal services organization. And, uh, and more and more, we're having single um, widowed often African-American women coming in who were being evicted from homes they had owned for 40 years. This was in Jamaica, Queens and other parts of Queens and started looking at these transactions and, and seeing a pattern of predatory mortgage lending where mortgage lenders were targeting uh, people who had equity in their homes and very little income or wealth otherwise and, and getting them into high cost loans uh, based on home improvement scams and, and other means and then repeatedly refinancing or flipping those loans. And so I had started a project uh, in Brooklyn, a foreclosure prevention project, and we did, started doing foreclosure defense and also suing mortgage brokers and lenders and then increasingly the Wall Street banks that were securitizing these mortgages and filing cases on fair housing violations uh, and also doing a lot of advocacy work. So we started a statewide coalition, uh, New Yorkers for Responsible Lending, to really push the state to put policies in place to address predatory lending practices. Fast forward, uh, because that's a long story, through the financial crash, which we unfortunately saw happening as a slow motion train wreck for like a decade. After the financial crash, I was working at New Economy Project, and we were doing a lot of policy work at, at the at the local, at the city, state, and federal level. So we, we helped to stand up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and we were doing corporate accountability work at, uh, as well, um, but not getting as far as we wanted to and moving some of the big banks along in some of their abusive practices. So we started filing shareholder resolutions with some of the big banks, really focusing on um, the impact of their mortgage servicing practices on communities of color and asking uh, the board to look into whether there were violations of the uh, of fair housing laws in their mortgage servicing that would put them at at financial uh, and regulatory and reputational risk. And we found that uh, filing those shareholder resolutions really got us to the table at a very high level. And we were able to make some uh, some real progress with some of the big banks on their mortgage servicing practices. Uh, and so I became very enamored with the strategy of shareholder engagement. Uh, and when the ICCR job came open um, in late 2015, I jumped at it. And so I started as CEO at ICCR at the beginning of 2016. And here I am seven years later. ICCR has, as I said, a very storied 50-year history. Um, and students of both corporate governance and responsible investing cite ICCR's activities combating apartheid as a seminal moment in sort of modern corporate governance history. But I want to focus on ICCR today and in the future. So why don't you take a moment to tell our listeners briefly about today's ICCR and what it's focusing on? Thanks, John. Yeah, as, as you mentioned early on, well, yeah, we have this great 50-year history, and uh, today we're over 300 institutional investors in the U.S. and globally. And we are still very much focused on shareholder engagement. So what we do is we help to organize our institutional investor members in shareholder engagement strategies to engage with some of the world's biggest corporations. Uh, we work on climate change and environmental justice. We have a program on worker rights, uh, on supply chains, on equitable supply chains, uh, on health equity. Um, and we do an enormous amount of work on human rights as well, really pushing 
companies on their responsibility to respect human rights under the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And we work on a number of cross-cutting issues. One big one is corporate political engagement, looking at, at, at corporate political spending and lobbying and really pushing companies on transparency there and to align their corporate political engagement with, uh, with their stated core values. Um, wh what I would say is really the premise for ICCR engagement has always been that companies that are looking after the well-being of all of their stakeholders and not just focused on short-term returns for, uh, for, for shareholders, but, but engaging with, with workers, um, with the communities in which they operate, their consumers, that these are companies really that are setting themselves up for long-term sustainability. So ICCR members, really our focus in this big world of ESG, when there's so much engagement that's about company value, our focus is really on first and foremost on the impact of corporate practices on people and communities. And that's, that's the starting point for our conversations with companies. Um, one key part of our work, uh, is that we, we, we see that uh, we understand that investors can't just be talking to companies in a vacuum, that we really need to engage closely with civil society groups, with community-based organizations, with labor, with organizations that represent impacted communities so that we're sure that when we're going to talk to companies that our engagement is informed by the needs and concerns of, of impacted communities and stakeholders. And that also when we're pushing companies to make commitments, uh, that those are in line with the, uh, with the goals of our allies. So we see shareholder engagement not as an end in and of itself, but really as a part of a leverage that's part of a, a, a piece of important leverage as part of a broader uh, push for social change. I, I want to get to the, in those levers in a minute, but let's, let me push back on, on you on your levers for social change. I heard about impacted communities. Yes, you said you think that um, companies which take care of all their stakeholders benefit uh, long term. But, you know, it, it sounded a little bit like a mantra that you were saying. Um, and so how do you, how do you, what do you say to those critics of the IRC and its allies who say, you know, you really don't care about investment returns. We need them for our future. You're just part of the woke conspiracy. And so why don't you just stay in your lane? We have religion, stay in your lane, labor, stay in your, you know, community organizations. Why, why are you, uh, why should anyone who is, cares about the value of the company pay attention to what you're doing? That's, um, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked, John. So, I, you know, it's a, it's, I, there's a few answers to that. The first thing I would say is that fundamentally our members are fiduciaries. Uh, they obviously, and particularly what makes ICCR unique is that our members are concerned about the impact of corporate practices on people and communities. But at the same time, we're a community of fiduciaries. So our members are investors, uh, that are very concerned about returns, not short-term returns, but returns over the long-term, they're long-term investors. And so we, we fundamentally believe when we're engaging with companies about good governance, when we're engaging with companies about how they treat their workers, um, when we're engaging with companies about climate risk and how, how companies are, are, are grappling with that, that these are not conversations. Obviously 
it's important to ground those conversations in how those uh, practices impact society. But we are also grounding those conversations very much in how companies are setting themselves up in the future. Why having a robust uh, a workforce that's well paid that, you know, where there's worker health and safety measures in place, where there's uh, benefits that are good for workers, why that actually helps that company to build uh, a, a strong company in the long term. Why companies that are engaging with communities and that are proactively addressing uh, impacts on communities and 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 um, looking to, for ways to make a positive contribution to the communities that they operate are actually companies that are setting themselves up sustainably for the long term. Why companies that are that understand climate risk are putting in plans to transition to. Uh, to, to the new economy where there's going to be renewable energy, that those are companies that are getting out ahead, uh, that they're not going to get caught flat-footed as things change and that they're paying attention to building um, a, a, you know, a loyal and robust workforce to putting in place to, um, measures to, to, to um, grapple with the changing world, that these are, these are companies that are sustainable over the long term, and that's the conversation. The other key piece I will say is that there's an additional conversation amongst our fiduciary members about systems risk. All of our members are invested across the public markets. They're universal owners. And when companies are engaging in practices, negative externalities that might be profitable in the short term, whether it's paying their workers a sub-living wage, whether it's environmental pollution, whether it's tax avoidance, our members are resolute that not only do those practices create risk for companies in the long term, but they're also creating systems risk. And this systemic risk impacts society and the economy overall and in, in detrimental ways. And when companies are engaging in externalities that detrimentally impact society and economic system, it also detrimentally impacts the long-term returns on universal owners' portfolios. So there's also a very strong conviction amongst our members, not only that company by company, companies that are ahead of ESG risks are building long-term sustainability, but also that companies that we as investors need to push companies more broadly to be responsible corporations in society so as not to create systems risks that will impact broader returns in the future. So let's explore that a little in terms of both systemic risk and uh, theory of change. Uh, you know, I sort of, although it was phrased um, confrontationally, I think it was a little bit of a softball to you on, on the last question, but listeners to this podcast are pretty sophisticated and smart about capital markets and even smart about systemic and systematic risk. We recently interviewed, for instance, um, Sarah Murphy from the shareholder commons who talked about it. So let me get a little bit deeper. And um, my apologies, I'm going to talk my book literally. Here's a quote from movie Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, which, as you know, um, was the first finance book to talk about systemic risk in that way. Um, and we want to talk about how values, ethical values, become financially material value. Quote, Viewed with historical distance and perspective, the connections between norms, law, regulation, and market behavior are quite apparent. What is considered as market acceptable changes 
sometimes slowly and sometimes quite rapidly. Slavery was part and parcel of early capitalism, but eventually made illegal, though I note that quasi-slave and clandestine practices do continue. Markets and just entry, albeit both unevenly and far from a straight line, the actual behavior of individual firms and investors is typically both faster and slower than the codification of those newly involved market laws, norms into laws and regulation, which tend to be both binary and universal within the jurisdiction. That is, something's either allowed or not on the effective date. So for firms and investors which shifted in advance, the legal change was slow. For firms and investors who cling to old social norms, the change came too fast, and those lagging market players sometimes complain that they're being penalized for doing what they've always done and that the rules have shifted onto them. And they're correct. Shifting societal values cause shifting laws, reflecting shifting beliefs about what creates value and risk and so in other words, your religious or ethical values can coalesce into value, but it's not a straight line or a constant pace. How does ICCR think about the process? Does it try to engage with leading, leading companies or lagging ones? Engaging with leaders is counterintuitive, but perhaps they're more open to outside viewpoints and might change behavior quickly. They're therefore helping the overall market to transition. Or does ICCR primarily engage with laggards so I can point out that they are, in fact, lagging current practices? What's your theory of change around systemic risk issues? So, yeah, the, the answer to that is, is both. As unsatisfying as that is, both leaders and laggards are important to engage. I, I, I think the points that you make in your book that you just reflected are, are really, really critical ones because we're not just asking companies or engaging with companies and saying, follow the law. We're engaging with companies and saying, understand what the norms are, where, where society is going, where the law will be going and where society is going more broadly in terms of your stakeholders. And, and, and these are the standards that you should set. Uh, you, you mentioned that you had Sarah Murphy from shareholder comments on your, on your show and shareholder comments talks a lot about guardrails, about how to, how to engage with sectors and try and set up guardrails that are not the baseline legal requirements, but are accepted norms for sectors. And um, this is not just about doing the right thing, but this is also about guiding sectors sectors towards being proactive in reducing their externalities, having a positive mark on society and building long-term sustainability. Um, we, we engage with leaders and laggers. There's obviously different strategies um, in, in that engagement and really engage with companies across, across the board, everyone in between engagement with leaders is, is really important. Uh, even if they're in, have some best practices, there's always plenty of room for improvement. And when companies make commitments, we, we see it as critical commitment as the first stage. So we're, we're tracking impact with companies about how they implement the commitments that they make. But also in engaging with lead leaders, we want them to be public in the commitments that they make, regardless of what the issue might be around worker rights or, or, or climate, whatever it may be, political spending. We want them to be public about their leading practices because that helps to move sectors along. And so we're engaging constantly with leaders in that regard, pushing them to be um, 
to, to really implement the commitments that they've made in a, in a meaningful way, but also to help lead the way with other sectors and even other industries and I, with their sector, but also, you know, across industries. And, and then, uh, in terms of laggards, you know, it, it can be challenging, you know, there's different types of laggards. There's a, there's the laggards that will come to the table and engage and um, we try and work with them and bring them along and educate them and cajole them and put pressure on. And then of course there are laggards that are not engaging with investors. And I think we're constantly trying to figure out how we can have impact with those companies. We file resolutions, sometimes get high votes. They don't move. You know, we're looking at other ways to, to escalate director votes and other ways that investors are thinking about. So really, really important to, think about engaging with companies across the spectrum um, and really to, uh, to, to have different strategic, uh, different strategies in place from, and, and different rationales for moving them. You said early on in your background that um, you moved from dealing with individuals and you didn't feel like you had enough power and you went to law school and you followed class actions. Um, I should give you credit. Uh, there's this, a Sykes versus Mel Harris case where I think you were co-counsel, which basically eliminated um, sort of phony um, theft of people's houses, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, and so a new economy you're doing with policy. At ICCR, you deal with some of the world's largest corporations. And, and, and your members are themselves fairly material institutional investors. Um, there seems to be a progression here of um, both power, but also different viewpoints of the financial systems. Have you synthesized that into any overall opinion about what the current financial system gets right and what needs to be improved? Yeah, a, a, a lot needs to be improved. I mean, I will say, you know, one of the fundamental. Um, well, you're things, still a capitalist, right? I mean, <laughs> well, I I run an investor coalition, so I, I yes, one of the fundamental lessons that we learned, or that or or that was so evident, is that public policy and the well-being of the public don't typically align. That that corporations. Um, have um, a, a stranglehold on the political process and that often impedes sound public policy. I'll give you one example from my days of um, fighting predatory lending practices. We, we pulled a coalition together at the state level and we got a predatory lending law passed at the state level that prohibited a lot of the abusive lending practices that really led to the financial crash. And there was a strong law in New York. Um, and a bunch of the big national banks wanted to get out of it. So the Office of the Control of the Currency, which during those years, during the Bush administration, and frankly, during the prior administration as well, did so little um, for, uh, for individuals, for communities, um, and really was, was a, a trade, a, essentially a trade association for the banks that paid uh, their fees. Um, wrote a preemption rule that preempted all of the national banks from uh, having to comply with the New York state law and similar laws that were passing around the country. And so a number of the big banks went to a federal charter at that point. Um, and so just to, you know, one example of very many, 
where you can see that the, you know, at the end of the day, the banks were calling the shots. And um, policymakers, you know, in the years leading up to the financial crash, always telling us, oh, it's just a few bad apples. Why would the makes, why would the banks, you know, make loans that, that are designed to fail? And of course, then we learned that it was, you know, highly profitable to make those loans and sell them to securitization trusts. So jumping forward from that work, seeing the impact of, I would say, very callous public policy that was fueled by a, a corporations having a say over public policy, having the main say over public policy and not the people, and how that impacted thousands and thousands of people on the ground who lost their homes, who lost their their wealth, um, who lost everything, frankly, because of these abusive practices fueled by Wall Street uh, greed. Uh, and then fast forward to the work today that we're doing. I think, you know, we do believe fundamentally that corporations can contribute to the good of society or, or, you know, we wouldn't, our members wouldn't be invested in corporations, but by the same token, we have to be clear eyed in particular about the, about how corporations contribute to the erosion of sound public policy and frankly, the erosion of democracy. And I, I think a key area here is corporate political spending and lobbying. And the fundamental problems there where we have a, a system where corporations are pouring money into the electoral system um, in a really, in essentially in a way that it creates pay to play. Um, there's no other way to talk about it in ways that in other societies we might call corruption, um, but in this society is baked into the system. Um, and also how corporations, particularly through their trade associations, heavily lobby uh, for public policy that's favorable to companies in the short term but really problematic for the public in the long term. And so we see public policy consistently, not just at the federal level, but very much at the state level, that's dictated by corporate money and corporate interests and short-term profit, not long-term systemic concerns by companies about creating a stable economic environment, but how can corporations make the most money in the short term and that guides public policy. And that's something, you know, we've seen for, for decades now and, and, and it's, you know, post citizens united, it's, it's just getting worse. And it's, it's something that we're really, really focused on at ICCR and many investors are, is really pushing companies to align their public policy, their policy engagement through lobbying and political spending with, uh, with what their stated core values are. And ultimately we see this as a deep systemic risk, as long as companies are pushing public policy, whether it's through election spending or lobbying, that is often inimical to the public interest, uh, it, this public policy engagement by corporations is going to create systemic risk that is going to impact all of us, including, frankly, the, you know, the portfolios of, of, of universal owners, investors. Um, so this is, this is really a, a fundamental problem. Again, kind of that I identified as a through line from you know, my work defending individuals who are getting foreclosed onto our work engaging corporations. And I think until we can tackle this in a meaningful way, we're going to face the same erosion of trust in institutions, in democracy, um, you know, that we've seen um, getting worse and worse. People don't have faith that, that public institutions are acting in their best interests and there are fundamental reasons for this. So I was going to ask you what one change would you make, but I will take it that, that, that is the answer. Um, so let me just ask you to expound on a little bit. What are ICCR members doing now 
about political lobbying, political contributions, dark pools, et cetera. This is a, a, a fundamental priority for us because we see corporate influence in politics is really cross-cutting in all of the issues that we work on, whether it's uh, pharma pricing and access or, or you know, paid leave for, for low-wage workers or any of the issues. And so we're really, you know, for years, uh, our members have been pushing with, you know, with great leadership from people like Bruce Freed at the Center for Political Accountability and Tim Smith and John Keenan, who have led a lot of great work around lobbying. They, you know, have really been pushing for transparency, for companies to be transparent in their uh, lobbying and political spending. But there's, there's been an escalation by investors. Transparency and disclosure is still in critical. But now really what we're looking for more and more is for companies to, to really put in place principles and governance mechanisms to align their political spending and their lobbying with their stated core values. So we have a project, for example, on climate lobbying, where we're really trying to push uh, Paris compliant lobbying um, across sectors for companies that have signed onto the Paris Agreement and, and, and say that they support uh, uh, climate goals, um, but in their lobbying through trade associations or, or their political spending through, you know, third party uh, organizations at the state level that are pushing climate denial are undermining what their stated values are. So that's a, a big push now uh, by ICCR members with, with many other investors as well, pushing on alignment, um, again, both in lobbying uh, and in political spending. You know, we have companies that say they support democracy, that say they support climate action, but they're funneling money at the state level to um, political associations that are undermining those those um, those values through voter suppression laws or um, all sorts of laws to block climate progress. Now we're seeing this with the anti-ESG laws that are that are um, proliferating across many states that undermine corporate progress on climate. And so we see it as essential for companies to really, in a really meaningful way, put in place uh, processes to align um, that public policy engagement with, with what they say they stand for. Um, and that's sort of a, a key starting point as we see it. Hey, let's finish with some uh, short questions and answers. How to relax? Um, anything active in the outdoors, biking. I do a lot of biking, camping, hiking, canoeing, um, also playing basketball, which I, I, I you know, I have had a lifelong love for hoops. I play a lot with my son these days. Um, and I would say also living in New York City, we take uh, great advantage of all the endless cultural richness of the city. So we see a lot of great art, see a lot of live music, food, um, and really see it as a gift to live in New York City. Those are kind of opposite things, the outdoors in New York City, but equally rich for me. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? Uh, you know, on a personal level, a number of things, but I, you know, maybe focusing out on sort of the broader level, it's, it's, it can be challenging to be optimistic about where things are going in the world. We've just been talking about that for a while now. And, um, but I think one thing that really gets me excited is finding a new generation of activists, of change makers, I, I would say. Um, it's so easy to be cynical as a young person and having young adult kids. I see that. Uh, every day, but uh, to me, it's really inspiring to engage youth that are committed to change, to 
to really to youth that are looking at what is possible rather than what's not and and being a mentor and 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 sort of a helping to engage them and teach them and foster that belief, that optimism, that it's really um, a belief in change is really an expression of hope and hope is hard to come by these days. So to me, that's something that's really uh, exciting and will continue to be. You mentioned you go to a lot of live music. What type of music do you listen to? Well, at very varied tastes. I love these questions. There's, there's so much more fun than some of the other questions. Um, I would say, uh, you know, a lot of African and Latin music, um, blues, old school, soul and funk. Um, I, you know, that's what I really love to listen to. But, you know, as I said, we go to a lot of live music, so we see newer bands as well and just get so much joy out of listening to live music. It's great. What are you reading right now? So I spend so much time reading work-related stuff that I really try and read fiction. Um, to get a break. And my wife and I are always trading books. The problem is that I always find that the greatest novels are the most depressing ones, uh, the most tragic ones, um, but the richest ones. I, I, well, I just read this novel about Chechnya called A Constellation of Vital Phenomena. It's an incredible novel, um, highly recommended, and really gets into kind of the fabric of this community during the, uh, the series of Chechnya wars in, in the 90s and early 2000s, and just a beautiful, beautiful book, but heartbreaking. And this other book I'll, I, that I also read recently, another heartbreaking book, it's called Every Man Dies Alone um, by Hans Falada. And the thing that's amazing about this book is uh, this guy, Hans Falada, was a, a, a writer um, during Nazi times, and he opposed the regime, so they threw him in a mental hospital and he went crazy there. And um, after, when the war ended, this friend brought him this SS file that he'd found in this basement um, of the SS offices that were ransacked. And it was a file about this couple that had, whose son died in the war and who had this really subtle rebellion against the state. And this guy, Hans Balada, took this file and he was in the throes of madness. And he wrote this unbelievable novel in a month and then dropped dead. Um, and it's the most incredible novel about this one apartment building through Nazi times dealing with all of the, the, the oppression and the, the, the stress. And it's just incredibly beautiful, crazy novels, highly recommend it. Sorry, I probably went on too long on that topic, but love with reading. what you're reading, no wonder you uh, <laughs> find it hard to stay optimistic. I, I know, I know. I, it's the same way with movies that, you know, the, the, the best movies are the ones with the tragic ending. I don't know if you, if that's just me, but you know, happy endings usually kind of dissolve the power of the movie. That's what I always find. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, uh -huh. what would you tell them? Maybe this will sound trite, but like live, love, laugh, cherish relationships, um, be an active participant in society. Don't be insular. Don't be too focused on your personal needs and desires because society falls apart that way. So be committed and active in society, but love life and, and, and love relationships with family and friends. It's really like what life's all about. Thank you. Even listening to Outside In, 
with John Lukumnik, with our special guest, Josh Zinner, CEO of the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility and understanding some of what ICCR is bringing to bear in today's capital markets and in their interaction with society in general. Josh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, John. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukonik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.